This is The Juggernaut Interviews, and I'm Snigna Sur. In this series, I'm talking to South Asian founders who have raised funding at different stages of their journey. I'm a founder who's raised venture capital myself, so I know how to ask the tough questions. I started The Juggernaut, a media company that tells South Asian stories, because I was tired of reading the occasional news story about us. I wanted there to be more, and not just about the usual suspects. So what you'll hear on this show is exactly that, founders who are not the usual suspects, who are smack dab in the middle of building. Today's episode is with Sean Hatharamani, founder and CEO of FlockJ. Sean's founder story is not an obvious one. He started his career in finance, but didn't feel fulfilled and decided to quit. Sound familiar? He went on a quest to figure out what he wanted. During this time, he joined a healthy food startup, Thistle, and soon figured out what really energized him, social justice and education. Months later, he would launch FlockJ, a platform that helps people find jobs in tech sales. Since then, Sean has raised over $14 million to scale the company. I was excited to talk to Sean because he made a pretty difficult decision in the past couple of years, one that founders rarely talk about. Even though things were going pretty well with FlockJ, he realized that things could be even better. But to grab that opportunity, Sean had to change his product. So how does a founder know when it's time to shift gears? So Sean, tell us, for those who are unfamiliar, tell us more about FlockJ. FlockJ is a platform that empowers anyone to access a job in the tech industry, specifically a tech sales job. And we support you not only getting that job, but also succeeding on the job. So that's accessing community, accessing education, and accessing coaching, mentorship, uh, and advancement so you can power your career. We're going to talk about you for a second. So Sean, tell us a little bit more about your background. What in your past led up to FlockJ? I sometimes describe myself as like a reluctant founder (laughs) in a sense that I've been very, very passionate about the problem, but not necessarily about being a founder or starting a company. The problem stems from my own lived experience of, yeah, trying to, to access education and opportunity. Growing up, first-gen family, trying to navigate the school system, we were really excited to just like figure out that financial aid programs existed. And that was just um, a huge unlock. Like I didn't know private school existed, didn't know that could be for me. And I spent a lot of my career early teaching on the side, just as sort of a continuation of that passion for access and upper mobility and trying to pass the ladder back to folks in communities like mine who may not have seen the doors for education, access, and uh, what that can do uh, career-wise. So I taught financial literacy on the side for about 10 years. And in that journey, um, started thinking about tech and the jobs of the future and where all our jobs are going, we're all going to get automated, all these sort of like existential things back then that now I think have turned up to 11 as a society and decided that I wanted to spend more time on that. I was working in a finance job at the time. It was intellectually interesting, but not really purposeful. Uh, Spent some time working with startups, trying to understand how they hired people, how they accessed people, and ultimately like just discovered a lot of the things that I'm sure you've, you know, encountered and others have encountered, which is a lot of it's a function of your networks and who you know and you know, you can post a, a job rec for a role you want to hire, but ultimately the criteria to evaluate folks for your company is a mix of subjective and objective criteria, and it's not perfect. And some of the most valuable roles that folks were hiring for were these sales roles. A lot of it was instinct or intuition or gut feel or 
any of these kinds of things that people would use to suss out things like grit, empathy, or EQ. So that's what led to this seedling of an idea of couldn't there be a way to expand access to these jobs that seem to both capture the humanity of being able to help customers solve problems, but also allow folks to advance in their careers and build their own livelihood. You're an applied math major from Harvard. You went to Harvard undergrad. You graduated in 2008, which is the middle or the beginning of the recession. You went on to work in finance for several years before having that inflection point where you just move to SF. So I kind of want to break that down a little bit. So let's just start first. When you say you're a first-gen person and you didn't know how to navigate, let's talk about that for one second. Yes. First-gen Cindy family, my parents arrived here when they were very, very young. And my brother and I were born soon after, right after. I tend to joke that my mom was born in India and grew up in Japan. My dad was born in Japan and grew up all over the world. And I was born in New Jersey. (laughs) So I got the short end of the of the stick there, but was certainly exposed to a lot of Americana growing up, like street hockey and, you know, riding my bike around and all that kind of stuff, but also navigating, you know, childhood as being an other. We, we had a small Indian American community growing up, but especially once I got to high school, going to private school in New York, that was kind of my first glimpse into the world beyond that not every you know community is a microcosm of all these different countries and traditions. Which private school were you going to? And, and were you commuting from New Jersey to New York every day? Yeah, it was wild. I used to take like the NJ Transit bus and then, you know, go across the George Washington Bridge, then take the one in the nine train when there was a nine train up to the Bronx and went to very fancy horse man, you know, school in the Bronx. I've heard of that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, arriving there, it was a totally different sort of like cultural paradigm to, you know, the, the street corner I grew up on. That was my first glimpse into the merging of like the parental expectation of you must like go to Harvard, basically, right, and fulfill the immigrant dream. Um, But yeah, to like be in this crazy New York gossip girl culture while coming from a very simple and very different sort of existence uh, as a kid and also experiencing lots of ups and downs as a kid, just in terms of our own families. Uh, struggle to break out of that first gen and sort of like create upper mobility for ourselves. And I think this experience is true for lots of kids who are growing up with parents who, who just got here, is it is very outcomes driven, very much like jump through the next hurdle. Like you're doing this to get to the next thing, which is the fancy private school. You're doing this to get into the college. And then we've sort of like done our job. Then you will go out and succeed. And in that, I think it's very easy to have a very sort of like narrow perspective on why like you're doing these things. And especially when you're growing up with economic volatility or hardship or anything like that, the easy answer is, okay, for stability, for safety, for upward mobility, for the American dream. But 2008, I mean, graduating college around that time, it was a crazy time, right? Because like you felt like the world was ending. I took a job in finance, mainly because I had to pay rent. <laughs> and you were probably one of the few people that had a job. Yeah, like I've heard I mean, such horror stories of people not getting their jobs rescinded. And Yeah, it was, it was wild. You know, I was applied math in school. I was still trying to figure out what it is that energized me or gave me purpose. And to be completely honest, I didn't even have 
the vocabulary to appreciate like what gave me purpose. I can say that today, like what gives you energy and purpose when I hire folks. But back then for me, it was just like, okay, what pays rent? And that's around the time you also started teaching your financial literacy class, right? Yeah. So just as I started my job, I also was starting to teach in Chicago. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to do finance, if I'm going to pay the rent, then I might as well be um, a student on the job and then a teacher off the job, basically. Wait, so wait, you were living in New York, but teaching in Chicago or how did that work? No. So I started, I started my career in Chicago. So I started teaching on West and South Side, just high schoolers, financial literacy program. Um, it's this program called the Big Shoulders Fund in Chicago. They go into high schools, they build curriculum, and they teach high school kids about the stock market and rent first buy and things like that. I stumbled into it and then got really passionate about it and then started to work on the curriculum. And I took on my own school and started to teach classes there and started to recruit others and kind of build this with my colleague. The program existed already, but I was trying to help grow it, basically. You have this amazing side gig of teaching. It seems like it's something you're really passionate about, gives you purpose. You're also working in finance. How do you kind of decide, well, well, now's the time that I moved to SF and you were a CXO, which you have to explain to me like what that means. I don't think I, I know what that means still. But <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love to hear how, how did you even end up shifting gears so much to like, okay, finance, financial literacy person. Now I'm going to switch and go to SF and be a CXO of this all. I think it goes back to kind of that like immigrant arc where you're almost conditioned to jump through the next hoop. And for me, that first job at a school was sort of manifesting the destiny that every sort of Indian American, perhaps, I'm going to stereotype here, parent has for their children, which is to succeed, right? To by all traditional metrics of success and getting that first job and starting to grow a finance career was kind of the beginning of that. But it wasn't necessarily what gave me full energy and purpose. It was intellectually interesting. I was extremely grateful to have a seat at a table, a good-for-nothing mid-20s-year-old person talking to CEOs of companies and having no right to ask them questions about their business, but getting paid to do so, and learning a ton. And I was getting paid to learn about how the system, quote-unquote, works and how companies grow and how they make decisions. And so from that lens, it gave me a toolkit to start to assess what gave me energy, that when you're on the conveyor belt and when you're on the train, you don't really stop to realize who you are and what you want and what pace of, of things you expect. My finance job in New York had allowed me to relocate to San Francisco. And so I'd done that because I wanted to like rip cord out of the rhythm of New York and took that opportunity once I got there to be like, okay, I'm here, but do I actually want to be in this job I relocated for? So not the most intuitive thing to like relocate and then leave the job, but that's what ended up happening over a series of months. And it was one of the best things that ever happened because I was almost forced to create community because I was in a new city with new context, without the familiar guardrails of identity linked to job or identity linked to you know what I was doing, and started to piece together a common thread, which was income inequality and just access to opportunity. It was always the thing that got me up. Um, it's why I teach and it's why I am passionate about a lot of different issues. 
And in that period of increasing my surface area, um, just started to get exposed to different startups. There's so much energy and creativity. And given I had some skills to uh, be helpful in terms of experience I've had in finance and business planning and with zero expectation, just wanted to be helpful and just wanted to learn. And, and that's how you bumped into somebody at Thistle. And, and that's like, how I bumped into someone at this. And they're like, you're going to um, be CXO. And you're like, yes, I know exactly what that means. I, I, love, <laughs> I love this story. Uh, I was passionate about food access and, and food inequity. And that sort of bubbles up to income inequality, the ability to access uh, nutrition and access just like, you know, food security at home. And just sort of like a friend of a friend was the founder. And then I just like connected with them, asked how I could help. And sort of one thing led to another. And that's sort of how that came to be. You weren't in that role long. You were there for seven months and then Flockchain begins. So tell us about that moment. When did it kind of manifest and you were like, actually need to create something and this is what I think the solution is. And the solution is very specific. We're talking about tech sales. Part of how I came up with it was being in an office and interacting with other companies. Like we shared an office with an, a SaaS startup as well. And I started to see common threads across such different sectors, whether you're in food, whether you're in fintech, whether you're in IVF fertility, like platforms, different kind of startups, they all had the same set of constraints on their business, which was like, we really need great salespeople. I started to meet some salespeople and I challenged my own stereotype of what a salesperson was because I'd always assumed it was this madman, Wolf of Wall Street kind of thing. But the people I were meeting, like they were in many ways, some of the most interesting, multifaceted people in the company with the most non-traditional backgrounds. Um, there were door-to-door salespeople who came from Utah and were part of big families. There were folks who were on the east side of, of Oakland and were just like trying to break in and were um, in different odd jobs and stumbled into this. There were bartenders, like all kinds of different backgrounds. And I just started talking to them and asking, like, how do you get this job? And a lot of folks told me about like friend of friend or someone who got them in or whatever it was. And I realized there was just no credential that, or, or, or no even awareness that this was a career that could create so much opportunity. And when I started to appreciate how much these folks were earning, I was like, this is wild. Like as an industry, it's so classic of us to be so myopic and think about coding as the only pathway to access tech. And 40 plus percent of many software businesses are salespeople. And it's one of the most human jobs you can do. So from an automation perspective, yes, you can have product-led growth, you can have marketing, you can have all these kinds of fancy things. But in a world of choice, having a trusted advisor to help you choose that product is probably not going away. That's how the kernel of the idea started. I was really taken with the human side of the folks I was encountering in sales and the universality of this problem and the timeliness. Donald Trump had just gotten elected and there's just like lots of turbulence and fear that was starting to percolate. And we were just at this tipping point where I was like, ah, like we need to build for the future to really diversify our companies. And it's always been important, but it really hit a fever pitch, you know, in the past year and a half or so. So let's talk about starting Flockjay. What I understand right now, it's a, it's a 10-week sales training course. It's a little bit of a marketplace in my head because you have teachers and you have students. It's happening online. 
I'd love to hear like in any of these kind of situations, you know, Andrew Chen talks about the cold start problem. Do you get the students first? Do you get the teachers first? There's usually one side that's easier. I'd love to hear when you were starting it, what did that look like? I remember the first month or so of FlockJ, myself and Quentin, the first hire at FlockJ, we were working actually out of Thistle's office. Uh, I would get in Ubers and I would basically play undercover boss. I would ride around and ask Uber drivers like how their day's going, whatever, and say, hey, I work in tech. I work for this company and it's a school and it supports folks uh, looking to join tech sales. Do you know about tech sales, et cetera? And would then like offer to connect them to the CEO. Like we're admitting our, our next class and then I would run in and then I would like put on my best CEO voice and I'd be like, actually, that was me in the car. <laughs> this is incredible. So you built on top of Uber in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we didn't like get all the Uber drivers, but we certainly had a couple of Uber driver students, but there were lots of sort of like very scrappy things like that. We would go into like stores and whether you're a retail clerk or bars and things like that. It was very boots in the ground. In many ways, that was the first side of the market to solve because we had to start classes. <laughs> Ultimately, I think we attracted an amazing group of folks from all corners. I will always like hold dear that initial 15 or so people, 12, 13 people. And then the next chapter in terms of the marketplace was I was basically, I have these memories of just sitting cross-legged on the carpet in the office with like a laptop, calling company after company being like, do you need to hire salespeople? We've got these amazing folks. And this was like week three of the program. So had to really bet on the fact that they would be amazing, which they were. And would you be interested in hiring them? And would you be interested in paying to hire them? So Certainly solve for the student side first, because we were building the curriculum as we were going. Every day we were building a new lesson and then almost pre-sold our graduate opportunities to companies and kind of quickly validated that there was a need on both sides. All we were looking to prove in those first two or three months, even if it was a tiny class of 13 people, that there was magic there, that there was folks who went through a transformation and had these skills and companies who were willing to bet on them. So the 10-week curriculum, who helped you create that? Were you teaching? Did you have to recruit a teacher? How did that work? I was teaching. Quentin was teaching. Kelly Sure, our third team member or second full-time employee, she came from the sales background and um, and she brought a lot of that expertise because I brought more of a teaching sensibility and Kelly brought a lot of the blocking and tackling of inbound sales, outbound sales, cold calling, discovery calls, all that good stuff. In some of your past interviews, you, you talk a lot also about teaching tech sales EQ, which is emotional quotient. I'd love to hear about how do you teach for EQ? That's like seems really difficult and really abstract. It is very abstract. And a lot of it is creating safe spaces for folks to be comfortable to even talk about EQ. For a lot of things, and I, especially in Silicon Valley, there's always this tendency to like measure every output. Like, so how do you measure EQ? Um, some of these things are harder to measure. And some of these things come up in how people themselves self-actualize in our program. And some of it is measurable. Some of it is just, you know, translates into their performance on the job. And as we enter this next chapter of Flock J, one of the things we've realized is that 
that warmth, that community, that culture, that supportive environment where peers are learning from each other in addition to folks who are more experienced is really hard to do remotely for companies who have big sales teams. And I think what the pandemic has definitely accelerated is this is phenomenon called the great resignation, right? Where folks are just like, I'm over it. Like I'm over just being harvested for the fruits of my labor at my job. And it became clear to us that even if we captured that magic in the 10 weeks, it was really important for companies to play their part too, because if folks were leaving our program and landing on the job, you know, most are very successful, but it is a big adjustment to the sink or swim sales culture that lots of companies have adopted over the years. And what we've realized is that we really want to invest in that experience, that on-the-job experience, because it doesn't make sense to just capture that environment in 10 weeks. If we really want societal change, if we really want upper mobility, then we need mm. to create the conditions for folks to feel supported on the job. Flock Day School was like 1.0. What did COVID change about the business? And what's the next chapter? So in many ways, COVID pulled forward the reality that we had seen coming. On the job seeker side of the marketplace, it was, okay, the value we assign to a college degree and college learning experience has fundamentally changed. That Zoom college is not the most enriching experience, especially relative to the price tag. And that there have to be alternative ways of acquiring the skills, networks, and support to launch a career other than traditional in-person, on-campus experiences. On the other side of the marketplace, there were two phases of COVID. One was the world is ending and no company is going to survive. And then the second phase was, okay, how do we rebuild? And a lot of that rebuilding process came to getting comfortable with working remotely which is where software companies stepped in on the tool side, and then all companies had to figure out how to build remote teams. And so something we've always been passionate about is being an online school to create access for anyone and not anchor to a physical presence, even though in-person is very important. That side of things was pulled forward because now it was societally normalized to interview people remotely for jobs and hire them without even meeting them. And that was one of the open questions when we started Flock. Is anyone going to hire someone who is across the country who's going to relocate to your city without even meeting them? And overnight, that was like, yes, like people will. We were able to, to play a really important role because a lot of folks on, on the front lines who were affected by COVID, whether you were in hospitality or retail or any number of places where shelter in place made your work impossible to do remotely, we were a great place to actually take a minute to reskill and transition to a future-proof job. So that was sort of like the first phase of COVID. And then as we grew through all of that, we realized that the bigger opportunity was, okay, like we've got plenty of people applying for our programs and we have plenty of companies who need to hire great salespeople because they have to hit bigger and bigger targets and keep growing. But why is attrition at an industry level where 30 to 50% of salespeople churning out every year? Isn't it a bit of an empty promise to have this school where you're creating a pathway for a job that can launch a career where the mean attrition is, you know, a third of the folks walk out the door? That 
forced us to really think hard about our mission and the impact we wanted to have. You know, we can place one, two, five, ten people at a company, but if there's a thousand person sales team or hundred person sales classes starting every quarter, that's a much bigger opportunity and place to spend a lot of our time. What I'm understanding here is that Flockjay School is still running, but you've added a second product where you're actually also helping large sales teams train up and just be way better at retaining their existing folks. Yeah, exactly. So we're we're building a community platform to onboard and develop sales reps, starting with entry-level sales reps. We just graduated an amazing class of about 100 folks in the past few weeks, but we're going to take a few months to really build out this platform and support our alumni and hope to bring back you know, our classes once we've gotten that product into the world. Yeah, I want to pause on this really important insight because I think a lot of founders don't talk about this. And one of the reasons I was really excited to interview you was this exact thing, which is things are going really well, but you saw a different path, which meant that you probably had to make some hard decisions about laying certain people off. You might have to change the vision. And that's really, really difficult. How do you realize this? this was the right decision? Founders will face this. There are moments, you know, when yeah. you were like, wait a second, this is going really well, but I think something else could be better. It's a local maximum versus a global maximum. Yeah, there's a lot of inertia to the thing you're doing today. It's really hard to disrupt yourself. And most of the time you can convince yourself to keep doing the thing you're doing today, tomorrow, especially when it is such a mission-driven purpose. And especially when you're seeing daily affirmation of it in the stories of folks you're supporting. So it was very hard, (laughs) to say the least, the heaviness of the crown that any leader has to wear is to be truly objective and think in horizons beyond just today and tomorrow and think what is the world going to look like in 12 months, in 24 months. And as we talk to our customers and understand their pain points on the company side, as we talk to our alums, the most successful and the ones who were struggling, we started to piece together a world where 12 months from now, if the industry didn't start to sort of address the attrition problem, then it wouldn't matter how great FlockJ reps were when they graduated. They wouldn't be immune to the forces that at best created just a miserable work environment and at worst led to them having to reboot three or four months into the job. And that wasn't a function of, you know, the FlockJ graduates or the FlockJ program, it was more at the industry level. SDRs are sales development representatives. They're the entry-level sales role that we support. SDRs are oftentimes working, you know, with a bunch of roommates or working in their parents' house, and they have to get on a bunch of calls every day and experience a lot of failure and rejection every day and then get up and do it again. They don't have the vibrancy and the serendipity and the humanity of being in person with others in a shared lived experience. At the least, if you were in an office, you'd be able to relate your rejection to someone else's rejection and commiserate with that. I could see where the puck was going. And ultimately, you never have perfect information to make a decision like this. But it's my belief, if you see where the world is going and you have conviction and validation from your users on that direction, there's no point in wasting another 
day working on something that you're going to probably want to change or build on later. Okay. Last question for you, Sean, what does success look like for FlockJ? Success really for us starts and ends with upward mobility and starts and ends with someone's sense of belonging and purpose and outcome on the job. You know, traditionally we've measured that based on you know, number of folks who are landing jobs and number of folks who are succeeding on the job and those kind of metrics. Now, related to those is advancement and wellness and um, satisfaction and retention on the job. Like those are the things that I think ultimately will govern what success for us looks like. But these are all, you know, shadows of the same elephant, which is, does someone have access to opportunity, support, education, community to succeed, to to achieve that American dream. And that's sort of where we started this conversation to create for themselves a life that might allow for them to self-actualize and support and, and, and create what they want to create. I think we tend to measure success in all these metrics that are projections of something that is harder to measure, which is, yeah, the well-being of the people you're serving. Sean Hatharamani is the founder and CEO of FlockJ. That's it for the show this week. Next week, I'm chatting with Kulveer Tagger, founder and CEO of Zeus Living, a property management company that offers flexible ways to rent and live. If you like the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this, and share it with someone who you think would love to hear Sean's story. Natalia Alcantara produced this series. Golda Arthur is our showrunner, and Josh Stang is our sound engineer. Sahil Ansari composed our theme music, and Mina Shoab designed our art. Thanks for listening.